Hello, God is like this. Life after death is like this. Here's a bunch of spiritual principles that you can use in your life. Okay, well you can certainly find people telling you this kind of stuff, and you can find a lot of them, and yeah, we're one of them, but how do you know if any of this is true? And you're saying it's true, but how do I fact check something like spiritual principles? How do we discern spiritual truth? Well, how do we know what's true about physical things? Well, we test theories against evidence, right? We use the scientific method, we run experiments, we record our results. So why don't we just do that with spiritual things? This drives some people crazy, that it seems just like spirituality is just, oh, okay, whatever you say, why can't we just apply the same principles? Well, it's a problem of observability. You can't make precise measurements and develop a complex understanding of something that you can't clearly observe. Scientific stuff only got this tight and refined as we developed the right instruments to observe. We used to think all kinds of wrong things about cell structure until we developed a microscope that could actually see those components. Microbiology is hugely dependent on having instruments that allow you to observe stuff. For spiritual things, we just don't have the instruments. Well, actually, we do have one. The human mind. That's the instrument. Not to say there could never be an invention that could somehow see the spiritual, but right now it's only our minds and hearts, which can seem like a pretty blunt instrument, so how do we refine it? Just like microscopes allowed us to start building a huge amount of knowledge about the microscopic world, in this episode we're going to build a spiritual testing instrument that allows you to gauge the validity of spiritual claims in the mind. Hey everybody, welcome to Swedenborg and Life. Today we're going to be asking, how do you know if spiritual kind of things are true? Mm. My name is Curtis Childs and I'll be your host and with me as always, Dr. Jonathan Rose. Thanks hey, so Curtis, much for hey, hanging. Everybody. In the beginning, we were looking at building sort of a mental microscope to help mm. us assess whether or not spiritual positions offered are true. So just briefly, could you tell, like, what are the components of a microscope? Well, I guess to break it down in a really simple level, you'd say you have an objective lens Okay. on the outside of the microscope that's close to the object itself. And you've got different choices there of objective lens that you can dial in on this particular model. And then at the other end, you have an eyepiece lens. And that changes so that you can bring something into focus and see it more clearly. In between is a tube that connects them. And then there's what's called the stage, which is a place to put the object that you're examining. So if we were going to take this machine and give it spiritual components, I think for, for where the objective lens is, we would put in what we would call our love lens. Oh, interesting. And it's not just because love is a cool sounding word. Swedenborg actually wrote, if in the church, meaning in the, in the spiritual teaching, something is said to be true and yet it leads away from good or love, it should not be repeated for it is not the truth. Wow, you shouldn't even repeat it. And that's, this is a strong statement, but it's based on the idea that divine love has designed, divine love and wisdom have designed the whole universe all to bring people to happiness. So if something is leading away from that, it must not be true. Yeah, so dial in that love lens to really get it accurate. And you could have something that is fact-ish, but actually is misleading. <laughs> like and that. we see that uh, in the world. For example, let's say you had this graph 
whoa, look at that. Green is oh. just killing blue. Oh, absolutely. If There'd be I, no reason to choose blue. Oh, if I was going to invest, it'd be a no-brainer. It's got to be green over. But that graph actually doesn't start at zero. If you zoom out and see the entire picture, they're functionally the same. Whichever's closer to your house. Uh, it's quite deceptive, yeah. So similarly, yeah, right. you anything that's not leading into this greater uh, picture of love isn't the full truth. Yes, and at the other end of the microscope, the eyepiece lens would be, um, in, in the spiritual microscope, the mental microscope, is how you apply it. Okay. Like you can change the focal length by what you do with it in your life and seeing how useful it is. Does it work? Right. Is it beneficial? So this would be our application lens. That's right. Swedenborg actually wrote that God created the universe so that usefulness could exist. Oh, so there's another important. You've got a love lens. You've got a usefulness lens. Look at those things through those things. Because yeah, it's, right. it's got to fit with these fundamental attributes of reality. And the ability to accomplish good things with an idea could be an indicator of its accuracy. I mean, that's another way you could summarize that lens. We see this in physical things all over the place. For mm. example, there's an article in The Guardian talking about how when we learn new physical things, we usually can do new stuff with it. Yeah. It says, when Einstein unveiled general relativity, he not only superseded Isaac Newton's theory of gravity, he also unleashed a new way of looking at physics that's led to the modern conception of the Big Bang and black holes, not to mention atomic bombs and the time adjustments essential to your phone's GPS. So there's some intellectual upgrades, but there's also some practical upgrades that the, come out of it. That you can put in your pocket. Likewise, quantum mechanics did much more than reformulate James Clerk Maxwell's textbook equations of electricity, magnetism, and light. It provided the conceptual tools for the Large Hadron Collider, solar cells, and all of modern microelectronics. Mm. So, so that getting something useful out of it or a new insight are measures of how true it is. Yeah, so what do we get out of our spiritual concepts? So we should, since physical knowledge expands our physical capabilities, spiritual truth should expand our spiritual capabilities it, in it some should, way. It should do something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A concept should be an improvement for you or for somebody else. Right. And then what about this tube here? Well, that tube, I think, is like our rationality. Rationality comes from a Latin word meaning to compare two different things. What's the ratio between them? And so you say, how is this like that? Okay. You know, that's a faculty that we have that allows us to assess the truth of something. Just because it's a spiritual sort of thing doesn't mean you can just put your rational mind to sleep. You've got to be yeah, looking at that's it. that's right. All of this is to be able to take spiritual teachings that somebody says, hey, this is true, this is something you should apply to your life, ah. and be able to discriminate and examine Put What's it under in the there? microscope. That's, have a look at it. That's exactly right. That's right. And Swedenborg refers to a body of teachings. He sometimes uses the word a doctrine as a sort of lens that you develop over time that allows you to see. In fact, you can't see without one. It's sort of the filter that you use on life okay. in general. But there's good ones and there's bad ones. Here's something he says in Heaven and Hell. The literal meaning of the word Without the light of genuine doctrine, meaning a body of genuine teaching, leads the mind astray in all directions, giving rise to ignorance, heresy, and error. So even if you've got something fantastic like the Bible to look at, if your lens is bad, you're not seeing well. And in the modern era, we've got a collage of potential teachings, not just the Bible and other sacred texts mm. and religious structures, but even something like a YouTube show could be telling you spiritual things. That's right. Could be movies. TV shows, websites, social media, books, 
pamphlets, all kinds of things. So we're inundated by this stuff, and the purpose of this show and the spiritual microscope is so that a tool for you to use, so if somebody says to you, hey, this is true, you can use this to evaluate that claim. Oh, that's great. Like you might say, a really basic one might be, does it make sense? You know, in a way, they actually look kind of cute down there. Uh, hey, everybody, I think we find ourselves here in what I would call a meta moment. I guess so, because what they're describing is a method of evaluating spiritual concepts, but that method is itself a spiritual concept. So then you would have to evaluate the method as a spiritual concept that they give you to evaluate spiritual concepts by using a spiritual concept, right? Yeah, or you could even reduce that formula down to just saying, just evaluate this like you would any other input. Don't trust it just because it's our show and we have lab coats on it. Right, right. Okay, let's see where they go with this. And just use every ounce of rational muscles I have. Yeah, it makes sense. People sort of have this attitude that, oh, it's just spiritual. I shouldn't really, you know, you shouldn't use your mind on it. Did you hear something? No. Why do you ask? Nothing. Okay, let's start breaking down how this tool works. So we begin our journey through the spiritual microscope at the love lens. And we are saying that if you're going to look at any kind of spiritual factoid or truth point, it's got to square with love or else it's a non-starter. But why? Facts are important or concepts, but Swedenborg writes there's something actually even more important. He says, we do need to care about facts and truth, but these must look to goodness as their purpose. When we keep our eye on goodness as a goal, we are able to see what follows from it. We are aware of the ramifications. That never happens unless goodness is the goal, unless it is dominant throughout the whole and in all of the individual parts. Because God has set up the universe in a loving construct, you know that if this idea isn't contributing to goodness, it's not cognizant of the matrix that it sits in. So how do we even determine, but now we've got a new term to define, how do you even know what something good is? How do you measure whether or not it fits that category? Well, we can clue in on this phrase, aware of the ramifications. So we could use our, uh, we could decide whether or not something's good for our body based on, for example, what somebody else tells us is good. Trans Fat Power Smoothie. A thick, delicious beverage for people on the go and in the know. Part of a balanced breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Fortified with some vitamin. Comes in uranium green, maraschino cherry red, and Twinkie yellow! Part of an active lifestyle. Please be satisfied and energized. Delicious. But is this information actually true? Or is it coming from an ulterior motive, like let's say, profit? Or we could take a different opinion, we could just do what our taste buds and our cravings tell us to do. But letting our taste buds make the call is a really limited perspective. 
So to find the truth about the value of a beverage, even one as amazing as that one, we've got to look at it through the, the how does it affect my entire body lens. Yeah, you have your taste buds and they might say, this is good, we like this, but they're not thinking about everyone else and they're not even realizing that they depend on to function and continue to live. They depend on the well-being of the body, so it doesn't make any sense for them to dictate. You have to look at the whole and what does good long-term and holistically for the rest of the body. Similarly, individual people are in this huge network that we call the human race. And to find out what's really good, it's not about what makes me feel good right now, it's what is good for me long-term, but also what's good for the entire human race. So back to the love lens in our microscope, when we're investigating spiritual truth, it's extra important to be coming from this idea of love. Why? It's because God is love, and you've heard that, but if you think of God being the underlying essence of all things, the way truth is structured has got to reflect its source, which is this love. Swedenborg puts it this way, the Lord is goodness itself, love itself, and mercy itself. Good itself cannot do harm to anyone. Love itself and mercy itself cannot spurn anyone. God never turns away from us, and because he does not turn away from us, he behaves toward us out of goodness and love and mercy. That is, he wills well toward us, loves us, and has compassion on us. If that's the nature of God, and you have a description of what you think is a slice of reality that doesn't do those same things, doesn't have that same care and attention to everyone, then you're getting it wrong because all this stuff reflects God even if it seems like a winding route to get there. The Creator loves all of creation, so God measures goodness according to how beneficial it is to the whole human race, which in turn is beneficial to every part of it. Love is the lifeblood of God's divine design. Just as blood vessels direct the life-sustaining blood where it needs to be, genuine truth directs life-sustaining love into everything, including the ideas in our minds. But if something blocks the flow of love into ideas, then that information becomes false and dead. Any actions or attitudes based on the information will have no heavenly life. We talk about cold, hard facts, but actually no facts are, are leaving anybody out in the cold. There can, yeah, there can be tough uh, immediate circumstances and there's times when you've got to choose long-term benefit over short-term and that can be frustrating and at times really painful, but nothing, but everything is leading to the good of everyone. So if there's something claiming to be a fact that in the end isn't leading to the good of everyone, even if it's a difficult road, that's a red flag. That, that, that's not really in it. So with that, this gives us a way to measure the accuracy of particularly spiritual and religious information. Swedenborg writes, the real doctrine of the church is the doctrine about goodness. That is, te the teachings about how to live. These are the teachings about love for the Lord and goodwill toward the neighbor. And yet these are the doctrine of truth because doctrine teaches us about how to live, about love and about charity. And to the extent that it teaches these things, it is true. Because you have, it might be tough to learn, oh, I've got to not be living this way. I've got to be living this other way, which is not what I would have preferred in the moment. In the end, not only does that make you more beneficial to other people, but it leads you to a happier life. So in that way, everything is working towards the good. Swedenborg goes on, a mere knowledge of religious concepts is what people have when they give their attention to doctrines about faith and do not want to know the truth within those concepts. Anything that has to do with life, anything that focuses on charity for our neighbor and love for the Lord constitutes the truth within religious 
knowledge. It's almost like the doc, what we normally call doctrine or these structures of theology. That's just the covering and the delivery system for this love stuff. So when we're evaluating information, the crucial components of our lens is, does this teach me about love? Does this deepen my connection to universal love? Because not just a self or our own group-focused love, but let's look out for the health of the whole body. So the mo more closely that this information is aligned with the goals of, as we talked about, the divine design, the goals of God, of universal love, of really being cool, then that we know that's got to be closer to the genuine truth. No matter where we're born, or who our parents are, or what faith tradition we grew up in, the Lord makes sure that all of us have access to some kind of revelation, some kind of truth tradition, some sort of wisdom that's passed down from before. And all such things make decent slides for us that we can put on our microscope. In fact, the way that this is designed is that we, once we grow up, are supposed to look at these things for ourselves. When you're young, your parents, your teachers tell things, and you have no choice but to pretty much just drink it in. Okay, okay, I don't know for sure yet, but you take that in. But the way the system is designed to work is that you can then take that and subject it to your mental microscope and have a look at whether it's true or not. And two crucial things here, of course, are whether how it squares with love and how it squares in practicality. How does it actually work out? Here's what Swedenborg says in White Horse 8. When people who are moved by truth for the sake of truth reach adulthood and can see things with their own understanding, they do not simply rest in the theological tenets of their church, but check them carefully against the word to see whether they are true. Checking carefully against the word, well, the particular thing that Swedenborg means there is does it show love? Can you see the divine love when you look at it? And how does that play out? Is it useful for you? Is it useful for other people? And then we gain a deeper understanding as we live by that. Swedenborg says, the church's genuine theology teaches the Lord, these are sort of crucial principles, faith in Him, love for Him, and love for anything good from Him. Love for what is good is the same as charity for one's neighbor. People who live life by this theology are enlightened by the Lord and can see the holy message of the Word, which others, unfortunately, never can. So you see very different things depending on which way you're approaching it. And these two lenses of love and practical applicability are really crucial for us. Swedenborg says, people in a state of enlightenment construct a body of teaching for themselves from the Word. This is an important step, whether you gather different teachings together so that you can really see what's true or not. So, why don't we try this with our slide that we have here. I wish I could show this to you all a little more closely. I'm not sure how to do that, but anyway. Wait, I can give them a closer look. What? Curtis, where are you? I'm down here, I'm right here. Down where? I'm here on the slide. Wait, you're on the slide? Hang on, let me see. Hello? Okay, you see me now? What we're doing here is using the application lens to look closely at certain religious concepts and seeing what their impact is. This concept is having a bad impact. 
It's making me afraid of God. I feel like I can't live up to these standards. One false move and he's gonna throw me into eternal torment. Or, if I feel that I've found the way to get on God's good side, and then it makes me turn on other people. You're doing it wrong. God's gonna get vengeance on you. Hey, looking through both the love lens and the application lens, I can see the problem. The love flow is blocked. Those words have turned into a false idea. You've got to remove that blockage. Wow, he's right. It really helps to look from a general perspective of God being love itself, and then also looking at what happens when an idea is used in life. Looking from a perspective of higher love is always the best guide, but looking from a perspective that's limited and literal actually blocks the truth. The people who gain light from the word are those with heavenly kinds of love because such love embraces heavenly truth, soaks it up like a sponge, and spontaneously unites with it, like soul and body. The people who are blind, on the other hand, are those with worldly kinds of love, because such love embraces falsity, soaks it up like a sponge, and spontaneously unites with it. So to become governed by heavenly love, we have to recognize and turn away from what I would call worldly or lower ego feelings that want benefit for the self, but not benefit for others. An attitude that we see ourselves as more entitled to compassion than someone else is a breeding ground for harsh judgment towards others, which in turn feeds the view of a harsh judgmental God. When picking principles to live by, let's say it's a life theology or philosophy, we've got to ask, how is this part of loving God and loving others? What can support the long-term benefit for everyone? Whoa, look at how bringing love into the words changed everything. With love, I can understand it as God clearly sees what's going on. That changes the impact. Now I'm seeing God as someone who really wants to help me and who can make wise judgment calls about what's healthy for me and how I can be helped and healed. And that's somebody that I want to turn to with my problems. And that also changes my view of other people and their problems. If God wants to help them and I'm trying to follow God, then I should want to help them rather than condemn them. To live a life of truth and goodness takes trial and error. We gotta do and then learn from our mistakes. But if we're willing to set higher love as our goal and pay attention to the impact of the ideas we do choose, then we're gonna get more and more guidance along the way. Because our understanding of truth will gradually mature and then our will for heavenly goodness will grow. And in every situation, we can ask ourselves, what's really going on? What would a loving God want? And how can I help things get better for all involved? For general guidance about getting started with different kinds of situations, check out our show, How to Love. Hey, Chelsea. Oh, hey, put these on. Okay, how did you get the microscope in here? I got it from Jonathan. What are we doing in here? Well... writes that it's actually part of the divine design that we not become convinced of truth instantaneously or be instantaneously made so sure of the truth that it leaves no room for doubt. Mulling it over for ourselves is actually a very important part of the process of developing an understanding of truth. Just as natural world truth hypotheses are tested with repeated experimentation, our understanding of truth develops over time with practice and consideration. This is true in refining our understanding of particular truths and our collection of a full worldview of truths follows a similar pattern. 
Think about it, when they first invented microscopes, they didn't instantly know everything about germ theory and cellular development and stuff. It took the collective scientific community centuries of study. We go through this same process in miniature in ourselves. And today, we're going to explain why with bread. Bread? Bread. Swedenborg writes that the reason why it's not good for a person to be convinced of the truth instantaneously is that when truth is impressed on a person in this way, it cannot be broadened or qualified. Truth like this appears in the next life as something hard, which is unable to allow goodness into itself to make it pliable. Like this bread. This bread is just baked flour with a little water. It's hard. It's tough. Try it. It's not great. Oh, no, also, no. Try dipping it in that oil. It doesn't soak it up well. Mm -mm. Oh, it tastes like burning. <laughs> the proper development of understanding truth is totally different. It's like making this bread. Oh, that's nice. And dip yeah. it in the oil. It soaks it up. Mmm. This bread is an image of the proper development of truth because of the process it goes through. We'll walk through the steps. So first you start with raw flour. Raw flour is like truth that hasn't been processed yet. Swedenborg writes that in the afterlife, as soon as a truth is presented to good spirits, an opposing idea is presented as well, which gives rise to doubt. This is done on purpose so that the spirits are led to think and ponder over whether the truth is really true and gather reasons in support of it. It engages their minds. That's like adding water and yeast to the dough. The water is like adding reasons in support of the truth. And the yeast, which corresponds to falsity, is like adding the doubt. Then to make good bread that isn't tough and hard, you need to knead it. Pondering a truth in the midst of doubt enables our spiritual vision of that truth to be broadened. It allows us to see even into ideas that are opposed to it. This fills out our understanding of the truth so that we can see and perceive every characteristic of that truth. That's like the long strands of gluten that are being created as I knead the dough. This gluten web is what will trap air bubbles as the yeast eats the sugars and releases carbon dioxide. So what you get is a nicely risen dough. And then it's time to bake. And once it's baked, it has a good soft crumb that can soak up the oil. Oil corresponds to love. And what Swedenborg writes is that when a truth has been processed in this way, then it's able to absorb the love that's inflowing from heaven and be adapted to whatever particular circumstances we're in. We might learn a real truth, but at first we're not connected to the love in it. That's like raw flour. Swedenborg writes, there is wisdom apart from love, but while it comes from the Lord, it does not have the Lord within it. And that's okay. As we strive to apply it to life, we're led into deeper connection to the love in it. Then you have something delicious that you can eat. It's an ongoing cycle. And it's as simple as taking that flour and making bread. Mmm. Okay, by this point we've got our love lens going strong, and then we've got our application lens as well. But as you can see, there's something else happening right here. There's one more element that's needed to bridge the gap between these two. So this area that connects the general love and the specific impact is what I would call the power of positive 
rationality. Because you can use rationality in a negative context. Everybody knows you can rationalize or justify some kind of lower ego concerns of yours. For more of that, check out our program, which we did a little while ago, Why Are Spiritual Things Hard to Believe? But in its positive context, rationality that serves higher love is essential in getting these high-flying heavenly ideas in a form in which we can graft it in or use it in our everyday life. Swedenborg claims that you actually can't learn genuine truth from blind faith. So you can't just have somebody tell you this is true and then you believe it and that's it. You have to take the idea and look at it and spin it and weigh it and prod it and poke it and see does this really mean something and rationality is what does that. Because you might have something that says, okay, this is loving, but I have no idea how I would actually use this in life. Or you can use something, but you're struggling to see where's the love in that. You have to be able to turn it over in your mind to make that work. And Swedenborg also found that rationality has to be used specifically in order to fulfill this function. He was a very logical guy. He liked to tackle life through his mind and try to figure it out. But he was shown through his spiritual experiences that you're not supposed to figure out the truth using your rationality, you're supposed to receive truth. So it's not that you are constructing truth from the ground up. Truth and falsity are coming into the mind all the time. Rationality is this scanner that we're trying to look to understand, is this false or is it true when we encounter it? He wrote this, Teachings about faith all come from divinity, which is infinitely far above human logic. The rational mind receives its goodness and truth from divinity. Divinity can enter into rationality or logic, but not the reverse. Likewise, the soul can enter into the body and shape it, but the body cannot enter into the soul. Again, light can enter shadow and turn it different colors, but shadow cannot enter into light. So he's very clear about the order in which things have to happen. And Swedenborg realized that um, if rationality leads in seeking heavenly truth, the lower ego can get involved and then this causes uh, all kinds of problems and conflicts. Since this is so dangerous, namely by means of natural sciences, to search out and investigate spiritual and heavenly matters, it has been granted me by the mercy of God the Messiah to venture to do this, not from my own daring, but from the inspiration of God the Messiah. Nevertheless, I must confess that every time I wish to involve my understanding in matters that are heavenly, I seem to fall backwards so plainly and on so many occasions that had I not by the divine mercy of God the Messiah been brought back on the path at once, I would have quickly fallen backwards. Therefore human philosophy can never enter into the spiritual and heavenly regions, but spiritual and heavenly things themselves must bring in earthly ones. By the divine mercy of God the Messiah, heaven has opened up to such a degree that it's been granted me now almost for a whole year to carry on conversations with the heaven dwellers and thereby to derive experience in spiritual matters as well as higher knowledge. This was done so that my earthly knowledge could be joined to spiritual realities. But I must confess the fact that whenever I was permitted to involve my understanding, I would have fallen face downward had I not on every such occasion been lifted up by God the Messiah only by His mercy and thus been kept on the path. So like every part of our mind-body complex, it's going to take time and repetition to develop rationality. Just think about last time you tried to pick up a new skill and you did it for a few times. It 
didn't quite work out, but that's all right. You got to keep practicing. Same thing with the rationality stuff. So let's look at the way Swedenborg would present concepts because he was getting all these new ideas that challenged Christian doctrine. He would present them in his works in a way that appealed to reason. So let's go through with an, an idea that he forwarded, which was he looks at the doctrine that Jesus died to appease God's anger for our sins, which was everywhere in the Christianity of his day, still persists. He sort of took it through the microscope. So first, in the, the love lens, God is love. Right? We established that, wants us to love each other. So from that, knowing that that's true, if we move up to our rationality, would a loving father be appeased by seeing his son abused? There's all these skits and all kinds of things just highlighting the absurdity of that concept. Is it justice to punish an innocent person for someone else's crimes? How does this rationally make sense? And then if we get up to where we apply it, what does that idea do? It causes belief in an angry God, no incentive to take responsibility for our actions, just shapes this whole worldview that doesn't bring the kind of love and truth that you think. So there's this new doctrine that Swedenborg says that you can tell this one is true because if you take it through the process, it survives it, which is that Jesus lived and died to restore spiritual order and a path of rebirth that we all can follow. If you want to see us give that particular doctrine an in-depth treatment, check out a show that we did called Why Did Jesus Suffer and Die? Because it's a question that's worth asking. So uh, enlightened rationality that we've been talking about, the place we're trying to get, it can look for the, the good and the love in things even when things appear bad on the surface. We did a show called Is God Fair? This section is about you turning over ideas in your mind, so we're trying to give you as much uh, material to help you turn things over as we can. Also, we did a show called Three Simple Ways to Love Everyone, so this is how we can look beyond people's surface faults and work to find the deeper things that are within them. So if we're starting from the assumption that God is love and God wants us to love each other, we can then better receive accurate spiritual information and see how does this make sense. In The White Horse, Swedenborg writes, once a body of teaching has been constructed by someone who is enlightened, it can then be supported by rational and factual means. In this way, it is more fully understood, and this strengthens it. Again, order is important. The rational's got to kick in, but it's got to kick in in context. If you had this tube just sitting over here somewhere, it wouldn't do anything. It's when it's in conjunction with the lenses that it really reaches full power. So let's say that you've taken this whole concept and applied it uh, to a truth, right? You've taken it through the system, but you just can't connect to the possible love in it. It's that particular idea or phrasing has done too much damage. Oh, yeah. You may just decide, okay, I've just got to discard it. And I mean, that's fine. Yeah, but the Swedenborg does issue a caveat about that, that he says it's important not to reject truth outright. Yeah. When you've been when you've been taught something and you've taken it in with your heart, uh, it can be hard to just reject it. Instead, he encourages us to use what we're calling the microscope of yeah. our minds to search for the love in it first. You really go at it because these truth vessels, especially ones that are deeply inrooted or have been meaningful to us, are this essential root for the Lord to connect to us. Swedenborg even goes so far as to say our spiritual life depends on it. Yeah, it's like an essential mineral or vitamin that your body can't synthesize on its own. You've got to get it in your diet. These things are crucial for our spiritual life. It's a big deal. And that love can't just come in as love. It needs these sort of truth vessels to use to reveal itself mm, to they us. They go together. So it's possible that you could have a good truth vessel. Say there's some phrase or psalm or something 
that that is spiritually true, but the explanation of the truth or the interpretation isn't good, or you can be misusing it. It's all, as with everything spiritual, lies in the person's intentions. Mm. Swedenborg writes, Truth acquired on one's own refers to deductions arrived at on one's own from cherished assumptions and believed to be true, although they are not true. This is the kind of truth possessed by people who interpret the word without receiving enlightenment from heaven. That is, who read the word without the kind of desire for truth that looks to living a good life. Such people are unenlightened. Mm, interesting. The truths of faith are incredibly precious vessels. So just because somebody misused a good thing, the abuse doesn't take away the use. The fact that someone misused it doesn't mean that thing itself absolutely has to be rejected out of hand, yeah. even though we have that tendency. Here's another part of that same passage. A concept that has become part of a person's faith must not be rejected, even if it's untrue, without full inspection. If it's rejected before then, the rudiments of the person's spiritual life are wiped out. It's hard to get something to be sacred to you. So if you've had something that was sacred, oh, yeah. is it, can this be repurposed? You know, so the literal sense truths that we've learned are important vessels. If we just reject it outright, we miss an opportunity for developing some depth of understanding around that thing. Or worse, we're depriving ourselves of this direct link for love to come in and give us this spiritual mm. wisdom. And I can see there's also an application of this to our relationship with other people because other people may be holding truths in a particular way and we shouldn't condemn them because, oh, they have this idea or they don't have this other idea. If we can look for the potential love version within whatever that belief system is and maybe we can try to help them to yeah. see the love in it too. And this is something that struck me about being online and hearing so many different people's views on things. Just because you hear someone espouse a belief doesn't mean you know what they really mean by that or yeah. why, why they believe it. it. Yeah, mm -hmm. which can totally flip. Once you take the time to see, oh, this is why that feels good to them, even though it feels abrasive to me, it changes the way you think about them. So if, we're look, if we take the time to look for that, I'm going to get around you know, your, your rough edges and see why do you love what you love, why do you believe what you believe, we can actually be supporting each other and finding where's the real commonality, which is in that I hold this because I think it does lead to love in the end. And then mm. if we're all trying to lead to love, that's good, <laughs> obviously. So anyway, this has been uh, really fun getting to hash out the microscope and excited well, to, to take this thing and go try to use it. It's been enlightening. <laughs> Thanks, Curtis. So we have our spiritual microscope and in function, it might be closer to the early basic microscopes than a modern electron microscope. It probably can't tell you everything about the veracity of every detail of every spiritual concept that you come across, but it should provide some magnification a way to sort and test spiritual claims. To use it, first you've got to put something on your slide. Any teaching with a moral or ethical or spiritual dimension to it, or anything that prescribes behavior from a sacred text or a religious organization, or a dream you had, or a YouTube show, anything potentially fits in here. The first lens you've got to look at it through is the love lens. As we quoted Swedenborg earlier this show, if something is said to be true and yet it leads away from good, it's not the truth. God is love and has arranged everything to pull us in the direction of love as much as possible. So if it's not leading to good, it's probably not reflective of the actual divine design. This might seem obvious, but don't forget to think about the concept. Don't just defer to its sacred status. Guided by the principles of love and usefulness, use your rationality to judge whether or not the concept makes sense and whether the rest of the world corroborates it, or whether it could be a useful part of a larger design. 
Finally, a good way to suss out whether something has love in it is the focusing effects of applying it to life. Even just as a thought experiment, what does trusting this and obeying this bring into life? It's surprising how effectively this can clarify the nature of something. So we want to start some spiritual experimentation. There's a tool that we have here that we're saying works, but don't take our word for it. Go test it for yourself.